2015 is certain to go down as a real barn burner of a year in Canadian athletics, filled with broken records and interesting stories to boot. It was especially a great year from the perspective of this show as we got to chat with a ton of really cool people, from rising stars to legends of the sport. This episode is a celebration of that. It's a celebration of 2015. Myself and a few other people who have helped out along the way, Jeff Costin and Adam Stacy, bring back some of our favorite interviews from this past year, including an uncut version of my chat with the legendary marathoner Bill Rogers, a discussion about indoor track with Premier Coach Dave Scott Thomas, and my personal favorite, a sit-down with Kevin Sullivan. Don't go anywhere, you're listening to 2015 in Review on the Terminal Mile, a Tracky Radio production. Hi, I'm Adam Stacy, the owner, creator, and janitor of Tracky.ca. My favorite interview from the Terminal Mile was with Bill Rogers from episode 23, The Legend of Springbank Park. It was awesome to hear what he had to say. Oh, I was I was just going to say this is uh, uh this is a very big honor for me as as a longtime runner and, and not just a journalist but a, a runner. It's you know you, you've heard all the stories and stuff. So uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Absolutely, for sure. Yeah, not too many people talk to me about Spring Bank. Spring Bank. Well, uh, you know, I was looking at the uh, the first race that you ran there, and there was there was shorter. There's Drayton. There was, um, you know, just just the all star lineup was just you know it's 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 crazy, you know. I think it's just the way the sport was at that time. You got to remember it was, you know, amateurism still ruled um, road racing and such, and. Um, there really there was no there was no prize money or parents money that sort of thing as I recall, as and uh, uh, so so the runners we we would be anywhere you know and uh, and I I'm trying to remember how I first heard about Springbank, but uh, I can't recall to tell you the truth but you know once I I raced there against Jerome and Frank and I think Johnny Anderson and and maybe Neil Cusack. Um, both Boston winners were, in, were, were, were running and Salazar ran the race years later and Nick Rose. And uh, yeah, it, it was something, it was, it was one of the first really high level, uh, road races with professional level, Olympic level, uh, competitors. The long race was a 12 miler and you don't hear of a whole lot of 12 mile races oh. now. It was that something that was more, oh, that's true. was that something more common back then or was that kind of unique? Um, I think it was because sometimes races would be, you know, perhaps at Springbank, they, you know, 20 Ks weren't too, too popular. Um, and the half marathon hadn't built up to what it is now, of course, you know, <clears throat> so, so dis- races, road races were often, you know, from one iconic location to another, or as in the case in the park and Springbank, it was measured, uh, I guess by the, the, the circuit itself. And, um, I think also the, the focus on records wasn't as strong, you know, back in the 70s as it is today, probably because of the, the financial side, you know, and the big push in the marathon for, uh, by agents and race directors, you know, for fast times, you know, so, so I think it was different then in, in, in the 70s and 80s. There were, there were, for example, a lot of seven mile races. There was the Falmouth Road Race in Cape Cod. And which still exists, of course, and, and Bix, seven mile in Iowa. You know, it's just the nature of the course. You know, it wasn't, it didn't have to be exactly measured. Like today, everything is more professionalized and they go by an exact 
um, like because we have, I guess, a, a the World Half Marathon Championships, you know, and mm-hmm. and and I think the IWF is is sort of even attributing world record status to the world's best or fastest marathon, you know. So so there's a push from that side, you know, by by the agents and the races who compete with each other. I think. Do you remember when you ran the race? Was there a whole lot of crowd support and did, you know, people come down to the park to see the races? Oh yeah, definitely. And Springbank? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. I love the course. I love the rolling nature of the course and uh and the crowd. It was like running cross country in the fall. And, you know, it had that feel to it. And uh you know, the that it was a a, a circuit. It was, uh, you know, the crowd could be could see you come by each time. It was unlike a marathon where, where spectators don't get to see um, the top competitors or any particular group for very long. You know, they go by and then they, they're through going on to another part in your city. But, but the, the park was just a perfect, uh, perfect place, you know, to, to, to see a race as well. Yeah. There was, there was a real, there was a powerful feeling to the race and, and, and it probably being in that, and that circuit, it was almost like a track, you know, like a cross-country type track. And it had, it had some grades, but they weren't such steep hills, you know, that they would make it um, a, a brutal kind of a course. You know, some road races, they're almost designed to be brutal, and, and the, the, the time doesn't mean anything. But here it was a kind of a, a marathon-type grades where you, you, or a cross-country type grade um, where, where you could keep moving at a pretty fast pace, you know. Mm-hmm. You set the course record when you uh, when you ran the race in '77, and you know by all accounts it was an exciting race that really pushed the the pace from gun to tape. What do you what do you remember about that race and and how it went down? You know what I I remember was that um, you know that 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 uh, Ian Stewart was there racing and Tony Simmons, and and Stewart had beaten me in the World Cross Countries in '75. You know. And, 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 but I thought here the distance would suit me better, you know, and, and so that's, and, and I was in good shape then. And so I think it, 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 uh, it, it gave me some momentum that I had someone to sort of psychologically, um, focus on, you know, and, and he took the lead pretty quickly and, um, and, um, but, but I, I think I was feeling good. I was in good shape. I was doing high mileage. And uh, it just went my way that day. The last time I raced him was in the World Cross Countries in Robot Morocco, where he took the gold and I took the bronze. And he, um, you know, a very good kick and, and beat me by seven seconds. Spanish guy was second, Mariano Har- Haro. But, but I knew who Ian was. I knew he was a great track racer, you know. Mm-hmm. But, but I figured this was more, more to my liking on the roads a little bit and maybe longer. <laughs> so, so it would be a little bit of a marathoner's edge, but it's a nice distance. It's a perfect distance where a 10k runner and a marathoner can kind of uh, be on be on a pretty even keel, you know. You know, some people say that it was once the second most competitive race in North America, uh, behind your home course of of Boston. Uh, does that sound accurate? And you know, how did it compare to other races that you had run? I I do think so because it's not too often that you can get so many top level competitors together 
even today, only the very biggest races, you know, a London Marathon or New York or maybe Boston, you know. But but here's a road race in London, Ontario, and they had they had a good crew, a good number, not just two or three or four, but they had the different distances as well, you know, the four miler for the five K specialists, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh and uh uh people like Duncan McDonald from the US and the top Canadians and, and the top uh people from, from around the world and Shorter and Drayton and and um uh, the runners from Great Britain, like Nick Rose, Tony Stainings. So, so I remember all those runners, and I think some some of the Africans might have been been there. I, I think I read that that um, Yifter, Marit Yifter, had raced at Springbank uh, at least once, the 12 mile, I believe, mm-hmm. but I'm not certain. But it was a great gathering, you know, and it it was it was it was starting to happen a little bit you know it, it at that time in the seven, middle 70s it was it was kind of like the the, the running boom was was its earliest days was 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 were still building you know to a crescendo sort of it, it was a little bit before the top kenyans and ethiopians hit the roads in great numbers though you know because prize money had not come in yet they weren't able to travel so much maybe in the case of some of the Ethiopians for a while. And uh, so, so, but it was so, it was close to home too. It was not far from where I lived, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I remember my, my friend and teammate Alberto Salazar going up there in high school and, and, uh, and I remember Jerome, you know, Jerome, I think is very underrated, mm. you know, in Canada and in the U.S., you know, for what he did as a marathoner and, and, and as an, as an athlete, and mm-hmm. and so so that's that was kind of a shock. It, it is a shock to me today, you know, that that, that and he's still the Canadian marathon record holder. Oh, he is, and, yeah. and that's it shows you how high a level he was able to reach, you know, and what a great competitor he was. But he he certainly he he, he defeated Frank, and Frank had quite a good kick, you know. But 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 Jerome was a very good strategic racer, and he had a good. Um, I think pretty good uh, 5K, 10K type efforts within him he was capable of, you know. And uh, I was surprised that he beat uh, Frank that, that first time we raced, you know. Now, do you think that it would be possible to put together, you know, that sort of race again with the with the field and, you know, uh, that sort of gutsy race too? You know, like, you say that it wasn't known... It wasn't just for fast times, but there were really, really fast times. It wasn't just a sit and kick sort of race. You know, everyone was was racing to win and stuff. Do you think that you could put together, you know, that sort of race now? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's a beautiful course, and your course is so key. You know, for 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 everybody. I think not just professional runners, but for everybody. Uh, not everyone wants to absolutely be destroyed by a course. You know what I mean? I, I like a really competitive course that's really interesting. In other words, it's not too hilly, but it's got enough hills to make the, the race strategic and dramatic. And some people are great on the uphills. Some people love downhills. But Springbank had both. And that park, that mm-hmm. park setting, you know, where everyone could warm up and, and, and you could see the race in a lot of different areas, it just gave the, it gave the race a lot of power. And um, and you could see uh, 
what's going on around you uh, pretty well. And, and there's a certain excitement about it when you're doing a, a lap race, a loop race like that, a circuit race, um, uh, because you, you're making a, a kind of progress, you know. It, it, in a way, it was a little bit like the Boston Marathon where you could you could measure your progress so well. It was, it was a point-to-point course there. But but there's something about a loop circuit where you can you can measure your effort, you know, and because you know it, you learn the course, you know, as you run it, mm-hmm. and you say, all right, now I know where that hill is, you know, and now I know where I can run really hard, and now I know exactly where the finish is. It's not like a lot of race. A lot of runners today go to courses, and they don't know what they're getting into, and, and they have no idea, uh, you know, um, how challenging the course may be, but the string bank was pretty pretty clear, and... Uh, uh, it was a pure fun race. It really, really was. It was very, very exciting. And uh, I think the best races are like that, you know. That's why it was the, the way they kind of endure. But I think with the big change to professionalism, the prize money affected a lot of races. And I think it was one of the races that was affected. Another race that I think was affected in the same way, and there are a number of them, one is the um, in Virginia, in Lynchburg, Virginia, is the Virginia 10-mile, mm-hmm. which was a little bit like um, uh, Springbank, though much, much hillier. It was almost uh, extremely hilly, but it also it, it had a it had a great start. It had a great period of time in which it was just just some of the best runners in the world, like Lasse Vern or Brendan Foster from Great Britain. You know, they were, they were there shorter, you know, and Rod Dixon from New Zealand. So, so certain races became magnets. And, and these, were, and in Canada, Springbank was, was for sure one of them. Yes. You know, uh, you know, kind of off, off the record now, uh, I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned Jerome Drayton because, you know, while I never got to, to ever see him race, obviously, you know, did you ever did you ever run any any Boston marathons with him? Yes, yeah, uh, several times. Um, let's see, my first Boston win in '75. He he was in the race, mm-hmm. and um, I was a pretty new marathoner. That was my fifth marathon, and um, I don't think we had he had raced seventy three or four. I ran in those races as well. But in '75, and then of course when he won in '77, it was, it was he and I were were kind of dueling neck and neck. <laughs> <laughs> we had broken away from the pack, you know, and uh, man against man. And but it was a pretty hot day. It must have been 80 degrees, and um, my feet were burning up. And um, Jerome ran a strong race, and and he won. Um, and so so so. So there were two Bostons there. Then, of course, we ran Fukuoka, 75, you know. Mm. And uh, and uh, we also ran in Boston in a race that is now also gone, uh, Michael. It was called the Freedom mm. Trail, 8 Mile. It was, it was a big race. I mean, Rod Dixon ran there, Mary Slaney of the U.S. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, Randy Thomas, 211 marathoner, Bobby Hodge, 210 marathoner, Salazar, you know, he ran there. And uh, a lot of top women like Joan Bryant Samson, and um, so so. Uh, but Jerome came in for that as well. You know, he he was well known, you know, because of his victory here, and um, but also because there's this strong relationship 
between Canadians and Americans in marathoning, mm-hmm. going way back. Mm-hmm. You know, going back to the days of Tom Longboat and all the great Canadian marathoners. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, and they ran around the bay and they ran the Boston Marathon and 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 on the road circuit here and there and 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 um, so so there is that long history, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, two adjoining nations, but, but but we also raced each other a lot. And uh, so Jerome, but I, I always thought that Jerome was, because he was very quiet, you know, he didn't toot his horn and he, he, he was, he was aggressive competing, but, but quietly sort of, you know, he was a great strategist and um, Canada's greatest marathoner on the inside, you know, mm. but, but I sort of feel he, you know, it's maybe it's a more Canadian way of looking at marathoning. It's, it's, you know, in Canada, I always feel that Canadians are, are kind of a quieter people than we Americans are. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and 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 so it's just it's it's kind of a personality sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, but he did great things for Canada, and so did the Springbank Road Race. And and it's great to see the uh, that marathoning has continued to grow in Canada. And, uh, you know, I, I won Toronto one year, and my friend Tom Fleming won it once. He came from the same era in the 70s and 80s as Jerome and I, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so so so, uh, so I know I, re- I remember running that race, and I ran, more, I ran the uh, half marathon within the Toronto Marathon, the October uh, Toronto put on by Jay Glassman. Okay, and, and and that's that was you know where we finished in the park, you know, it's just a beautiful, uh, beautiful finishing area, mm-hmm. and uh, and and so so I think it's it's very exciting to have been part of this boom in, in marathoning and road racing over the years, and Springbank played its role for sure, and I'm glad it's still going. You know, and because it is the perfect setting for a road race. Thank you very much, uh, and you know, thanks, thanks for everything. Once, once I get this all pieced together and stuff, I'll be sure to send you a copy. Okay? That would be great. Thanks a lot. Hello, my name is Jeff Costin, occasional runner, occasional pundit on the Terminal Mile. My favorite interview on the program this last year was uh, Michael's interview with Dave Scott Thomas, coach of Guelph and Speed River Track and Field Club. There are no shortage of good athlete interviews on the program, but it's definitely worth your time to hear the perspective of a coach and a builder in athletics, and this interview is a great place to start. Merry Christmas. My next guest is no stranger to the CIS indoor season, building and coaching the University of Guelph team to multiple indoor championships, collecting many top coach accolades along the way. He is also the coach of the Speed River Club, with a roster that has included some very recognizable Olympians. Welcome to the show, Dave Scott Thomas. Thanks for having me, Michael. Well, the bulk of the really big meets are yet to come. The season was really kickstarted early in about mid-November when one of your athletes, Heather Petrick, smashed the Canadian Indoor Junior 5,000 meter record with a uh, 1631.10, auto-qualifying for the 3,000 at CIS just a week after the cross season was over. While it caught a lot of people off guard, it was a move that made a lot of sense in, uh, in hindsight. When did you decide that this was the route you wanted to take, and was it a spur of the moment sort of thing, or had you planned it for a while? We'd uh, we'd had it in mind for a while. I, I, part of the fun of working with the group here is we're pretty open minded, I think, and creative, and we have a lot of athletes that are able to look at different possibilities without getting too caught up in it. Um, you know, so 
we, we talked in the summer with Heather. She, she'd run really well in the Inferno here in the 5,000, and we started wondering if a uh, Canadian junior record might be in the offing on the outdoor track. And by the time uh, she got to World Junior, she was just feeling a little tired and not ready to go for it then. So we had plunked the 5,000 here. You have to sanction meets and register them and put them on the AO website. So we had put that in place uh, sometime prior with the caveat that we would wait till after CIs was over for cross and then just see who had uh, a little energy and was feeling it. And so we waited till we came back from St. John's uh, to see if Heather wanted to go and she was still pretty hungry. And uh, I mean, Katrina Allison, she's only a year older. I mean, what a terrific run for her. So she ran uh, quite fast in that as well, 1622, which beat her outdoor PB and Sophie Watts jumped in. So, uh, you know, we had always just sort of said it's here, it's a possibility and it's a, a fun thing to do. Um, and it's an opportunity, but we were willing to let it go if, uh, if, if she was tired. On that topic, with a stable of athletes like yours, the case could be made that a 5,000-meter indoor race could be very good for your team. Uh, in your opinion, should the CIS endorse a race longer than the 3,000? I don't think so, to, to be perfectly candid. And, and, and it's a bit difficult to say that since, just as me, Dave, I think we're shy sometimes in our country about events and we think 5,000 is long and the reality is 5,000 is not a very long uh, event. But for a couple of reasons, I don't, I wouldn't pursue it in the CIS right now. I don't think there's a global appetite to do it. Uh, so I don't think we'd see a lot of great racing and in, in, indoors for me is a time of year where you really want to promote tactics. It's on a, a compressed track. It's only 200 meters. It's a chance to get used to moving with bodies. I think there's a huge benefit to that in terms of preparing you for the summer. And so I, I'm just not sure it would be something to carry forward for me right now. And I think as a coach, you're you're beholden to try to endorse the things that support the league, not what's best for your team. I think it's very short-sighted to just sort of say, well, we're a pretty good distance school. We had a good cross-country team. So we would benefit from a 5,000. Um, I think you have to look at what the will of well, all the constituents are. I just don't think it's there for the 5,000. The other thing I guess I would add in with that too is a, I think there's a tendency within our sport sometimes to conflate what you're trying to achieve with competition and the training you do to get to that competition. That is, just because you're running a distance doesn't mean you have to be hammering specifically uh, training all the time for that distance. When you look at the overall portion of physiological load that comes from competitions, particularly indoors, it's really, really small. You're getting a much greater comp contribution to your training load from all your workouts. So whether it's a 3,000 or 5,000 indoors, to me, in terms of the arc of what we're trying to do for the summer is trivial, really. So, you know, let's keep it at the three right now. I think we get more bodies hammering together. And at some point, if we got a little more depth nationally and, and a little bit more will to go after 5,000, then we'd get together as a coaching group in the CIS and try to make that happen. It seems to be a hot topic around the CIS right now. Uh, did they make the right decision Oh, when they followed the NCAA this year and adjusting the bank track and oversized track conversion rates to be the same? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, you know, that had been in the works for a few years. Uh, Andy McGinnis had done a lot of work with the NC2A in trying to get their data set. We've had conversion factors in the CIS for a while, and generally on oversized tracks. And, you know, there's an advantage to running on the, the bank track. When the numbers came out, we, we finally got them, and Andy had done a lot of, uh, as I say, work uh, bridging with the NC2A and trying to get their information. The, the conversion standards were larger than I would have thought. I mean, you have to be aware a bit of, of confirmation bias, you know. Uh, the numbers are, are fairly big. And so when you're looking at the K or 1500 or whatever, I mean, 3,000 indoors right now, it's about five seconds. So, but 
I think it's going to push performances on the flat tracks and it makes them more valuable. And I, I think it's great to, we have enough data now that we can understand from thousands and thousands of athletes that have run and, and performed that bank tracks perform more closely to oversized tracks. So to bring them in alignment, I think it makes a more equitable process within our league. With that knowledge, will you be seeking out a banked or oversized tracks to give your athletes that added edge, or is it overall pretty trivial? Uh, I think it's significant, but I actually, I actually think Michael, it's more the other way around. You go after flat tracks a bit more now. Mm-hmm. Uh, strategically, the last few years, the bigger advantage was to, to bank tracks, and there's a number of, of reasons you would travel and go to these venues. And one is the depth of the competition. One is the speed of the track or the surface of the track. Part of it is the fact that I think as a CIS coach, I'm also a a steward for the growth and maturity and experiences of the athletes I work with. So it's just cool to see more of our continent by travel sometime. But the changes right now improve the valuation of the flat tracks. So, you know, Windsor or Toronto or our our own little four-lane track out here all of a sudden have, I think, more value. You know, we just, uh, a few minutes ago, I watched a couple of 300s at our, our New Year's opener here. And... What you run here now is the time you've run, whereas if you go to the oversized track, uh, you've got to apply a standard to that. So my sense is we're going to see a drive more to the flat Canadian 200-meter tracks in the CIS, and I think that's a good thing. You are listening to the Terminal Mile right now, and I am joined by my guest, Dave Scott Thomas. He's the coach of the University of Guelph team as well as the Speed River team. He's actually, uh, we're actually talking to him while the Griffin Open is going on right now. You know what? Coming off an extremely dominant cross season, does that usually have an effect on your team's indoor season? Not in, not in and of itself. I Generally, when I'm working with the team here and with each individual, I'm looking along a three or four year longer multi-year arc. Cross country is in the general prep phase of the season. I love CIS cross country. I enjoy it. But we use that as... Part of the training load and the methodology on way to other things. So the, you know, whatever happened in St. John's this year or London the year before, the day of that competition is really uh, independent of what we're trying to do indoors, other than it's just part of the building phase, you know, general prep. I mean, we're out doing tempos. We tend to not cut for OUs. We uh, we do a small cut for CIs, but we're not really doing that much uh, percentage of anaerobic lactic work at that time of the year. So it was great. We had a, a great time out east this year. Um, you know, we host next year. We'll have a great time there. But I try to keep my mind on what the priority are. And the priority is the team outcome is part of that. But the team is composed of a number of individuals and they have their goals. And their goals generally for us are prioritized towards the summer season. So, uh, you know, we've used our general prep phase through the fall. We run a bit of cross country as, uh, as part of that. We move into indoors. For most of our athletes, indoors isn't a time to run a pure peak either. We're using that, certainly with our elites and our national class athletes, to try to set up uh, the the primary annual goal. And that's usually uh, whatever the national teams are that we're shooting for in the summer. You know, obviously there are some pretty key differences between the indoor and outdoor track seasons. Uh, Is there anything that you specially train your athletes for uh, in the indoor season? That could be, you know, physical or mentally. They're different races as well. Uh, You know, I mentioned earlier, I just like, the small size of the indoor track tends to push the bodies together. Things unfold really quickly, and I just I think that really sharpens you up for the summer season and the the uh, the big old outdoors. Um, physiologically, 
I like to do surface adaptation and, and adaptation to motion. So we start bleeding in small elements of that, of just getting on the rubber um, or getting used to the bends piece by piece. You know, we might do a little bit of that in, in October, and that's not really banging very hard on the track. It's just getting used to the rotational forces and the surface type uh, piece by piece with that. But physiologically, not too much. As I say, it's we're moving out of the general prep and into the specific prep time of the year. So we tend to do a little more specific work indoors, but it is, in most cases, a situation where we're trying to set up for the bigger goal. Again, that's the summer season. The Canadian Indoor Championships are on this year. What's that looking like? Are any of your Speed River athletes looking to attend? Yeah, yeah, we'll send a few. Um, take it on a case-by-case basis. Now, if you're a carded athlete, you're obliged to go and compete. You don't have to compete in your primary event, but but you're supposed to go and compete uh, indoors. And so uh, so any of our carded athletes will, will go there. And there usually has been a national team camp uh, down in Phoenix the last two years to get everybody together and talk about the summer and do some education and training. And this year that's going to be held in and around the national champs in Montreal. So, uh, so that's going to tend to draw in more of those athletes. So right now we're looking at sending five or six of our, uh, post-collegiates to go and compete there. And then I'll go and sit on some of the athletics Canada meetings as well. Finally, taking a look long-term at 2015, what are the major dates circled on your calendar? Uh, any big achievements you're hoping your athletes to hit this year? Every athlete that I work with, whatever they're going after is, is a big achievement for, for me, so I can get excited about a twilight meet with our crew. But obviously the big things on the calendar this year are the World Champs in Beijing. Uh, there's Pan Ams in Toronto, and there's uh, FISU in uh, Korea. So, and, I mean, FISU is a good meet, man. I mean, it's just, it's a really good competition. Uh, it's a big event, multi-sport event. So certainly our collegiate athletes in the, the wheelhouse or, I mean, anybody who's a Canadian athlete competing in track and field in the university system, you should be looking at that. It's a great competition, a really, really uh, enjoyable trip. So those are sort of the main things on the international calendar. We have uh, a group of our post-collegiates that are heading down to Austin, Texas for a few weeks of warm weather training in a couple of days. And then we'll be up in uh, an altitude camp in Flag. Uh, we'll run a spring marathon with our uh, elite marathoners. So there's all sorts of stuff going on. I mean, I, I look at my calendar from now through till next December, and there's uh, there's a lot of road trips planned. Well, I won't hold you up any longer. Thanks a lot for being on the show today, Dave. Thanks for taking the time to interview me. When going through the list of athletes I was lucky enough to catch up with this past year, I knew I had a really tough task to pick just one. The one that I did pick can arguably be called one of the best Canadian runners of all time. That man is Kevin Sullivan, and I got to chat with him this spring before he was inducted into the Canadian Athletics Hall of Fame. A very well-deserved accomplishment, in my opinion. Here's my interview with Brantford's own, Sully. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Thanks, good to be here. First of all, congratulations on your spot in the Hall of Fame. Uh, what does it mean to you to finally get that spot? Well, you know, it's it's not so much a matter of being... Of- finally getting that spot because I don't think I ever I don't think even when I kind of hung up my spikes to say you know I, I, I it was never really an expectation um, or or a want or a need of mine I mean I felt like I accomplished a lot of good things in my career and um, you know if this is one way of recognizing those and you know I'm, I'm extremely grateful for that but it was uh, there was never an expectation that from my point of view that I was going to be 
nominated or or put into the into the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, it's it, it's just one of those things that kind of you know it, it, it came along, and I think there's uh, there's so many great athletes that that could have been chosen before me, and so it's 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 pretty humbling to be put in there. You know, as was alluded to in the introduction, you had one heck of a career as an athlete. You know, if you had to narrow it down to just a few, what races would be the most memorable for you, and and perhaps why? Well, I mean, I think I think there's a few throughout, you know, kind of various stages of my career. Um, you know, I think certainly um, my first international medal, um, or I guess my first my first world um, international medal, which is a, a you know is a bronze at the, at the World Junior Championships. Um, in '92, in uh, in Seoul, that was kind of the that was kind of the first real big step forward um, for me um, on the international stage. Like I felt like, um, and then you know beyond that, as I moved into the senior ranks, you know, winning a silver medal at Commonwealth Games in Victoria, um, you know, in front of a home crowd with my dad there, uh, you know, that was a pretty special moment for me. Um, you know, throughout my collegiate career, I had a lot of great moments. Um, you know, from NCAA titles to, you know, finally winning a, a Penn Relays um, distance medley relay championship with, with three of my teammates um, from Michigan who were also, you know, some of them were my roommates. Um, you know, that was a pretty special moment for me. And then, you know, probably the, you know, the culmination of it all um, is probably the, the fifth place um, at, at the Olympic Games in Sydney. Um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a medal, um, you know, it wasn't standing on the podium, but for me, it was definitely the best, it was the best series of races that I'd ever put together on the, on the international stage. So, um, you know, it was, that, that was kind of the, the felt like the culmination of a kind of a, a, almost a lifetime of, of hard work kind of culminating in those, those three races, um, you know, going, getting into the final, you know, and then, you know, there's, Obviously, the Canadian records are special, um, you know, and those are, you know, but those are those are really kind of little smaller blips on the radar. I kind of look at, uh, but the you know the, the real ones that stand out were the, the the podium performances and then and definitely the Olympic Games. You know, uh, going a little bit off track uh, for a second, but uh, still still related. I noticed that you posted that uh, you still have the record for the Mayo Mile. You know, are you surprised when when you see stuff like the Canadian records and and the Mayo Mile record? Uh, those records still holding up? I mean, I mean a little bit. I mean, you know, I'm I'm not naive. I understand that that you know, three thirty one for fifteen hundred is is a is a very very respectful time still. You know, today. 15 years later, um, you know, so it's definitely, it's, it's not an easy mark to hit. Um, and I would say that the opportunities are becoming less and less for athletes to really get into the quality needs they need to in order to, to kind of challenge those times. So, you know, I think, I think obviously there's, there's a couple of reasons why maybe it hasn't been broken yet. Um, you know, and part of it just comes down to timing. I mean, you've got to have the, the right athlete at the right time in the right race, um, and everything's all got to come together on on that one day. So, you know, in a in a way, it's it's not surprising, um, but uh, you know, I think I think we'll see. You know, in the, within the next probably five to ten years, if it doesn't get broken, I think it's going to get challenged very closely. 
Now, I don't know if you pay attention to such things, but there seems to be a lot of online debate over what era produced the best Canadian male distance runners, and your name comes up a lot with uh, Hood and Schiebler quite often. In your opinion, what was the best time period for Canadian distance runners? Well, I think it's I think it's difficult to to really compare across eras, um, you know, for a number of different reasons. Um, you know, if you're looking kind of strictly from you know metal type performances, then you know you're probably looking more into the Kid and Carruthers um, type era and and arguing that 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 is the the greatest era of Canadian middle distance and distance running. But if you move you move up farther and you get into the kind of the the early mid '80s into the early '90s, um, you know, we had a very strong group of middle distance and distance runners. Um, you know, that that competed at a very high level at you know Commonwealth Games, Pan American Games, Goodwill Games, um, and and then into the '90s when you kind of get into that that era where where I was in, Graham Hood was in. Um, you know, you have Jeff Schiebler, obviously you got Gary Reed, who's a medalist um, at the World Championship. So, you know, there's. It's really, it's really difficult to compare. Um, you know, the depth certainly wasn't as great um, as you go back earlier into earlier areas, eras. And then, you know, as you kind of move into the mid-80s, early 90s, and, and especially into the late 90s, early 2000s, where you see this explosion and, and just huge depth of African runners, um, you know, it can make it really difficult because you're comparing, you know, maybe medals in the 60s to 5th, 6th, Seventh finalist spots in in the in the nineties and the two thousands. So, you know, I think I, I think we have each era has its own strengths and weaknesses. I mean, I think you could put our era up against any other era, and we would be very competitive. But I think it's too difficult to say one is who's definitely greater than the other. Fast forwarding to this era, are there any Canadian runners competing now that you especially like to watch? Well, it's it's interesting. I think we've got a really a really good group of. You know, middle distance runners right now across a number of events. So, you know, um, you know, it's been it's been fun watching the kind of the marathoners really take off in the last few years with, you know, Reed Coulsett and Eric Gillis, and then on you know on the women's side, obviously uh, Kristen Deshaney and Lenny Marchand. You know, they're starting to take Canadian marathon you know back to a level that that you know we haven't seen for twenty or thirty years, um, and I think that's inspiring some other. Um, you know, some other athletes to, you know, to really kind of put in the, the, the type of aerobic development that you really need to be successful in a marathon at an earlier age. So it's, it's been exciting to see that event kind of take off. You know, you move back into kind of the middle distances, you know, um, you know, really have enjoyed watching some of the younger guys right now. So you have, at, you know, uh, Adam Palomar, who broke the Canadian junior record a couple of years ago. Um, and then you've got um, Justin Knight, who's having a breakout season at Syracuse this year. And, um, you know, he's a guy that I think is going to be really exciting to watch over the next few years. Um, you know, on the women's side, obviously, you know, we've got a lot of great depth in the middle distances right now. You know, you look at our 800 girls, you know, being led by um, Melissa Bishop and then, you know, watching Kate Van Bustrick and, um, Sheila Reed and Hillary Stellingworth coming back off of off of her pregnancy. I mean, I think we've got a really strong group, and it's really exciting to watch right now. So it's um, it's it's fun to be able to sit back and, and be a spectator and uh, and a fan of, of Canadian running right now, and um, you know, and not have to be so focused on just my you know my own individual individual 
performance goals. You grew up in uh, Brantford, Ontario, which, for those who don't know, is not a huge place, uh, but one that has given Canada some very notable sporting talent, including uh, Krista DeShaney, as you just mentioned, and Wayne Gretzky. Uh, what was it like growing up in Brantford, and how did it contribute to your running career? Well, I mean, Brantford, I mean, it's a great youth sport town. Um, there is a huge... Um, a huge upswell support for for minor sports, whether it be you know hockey, soccer, track and field. Um, you know the community is is very much rallies behind um, sport in, in in our community, and um, you know, so I had a lot of, I had a lot of good support at a young age. Um, you know I was able to get a lot of media exposure, which was which was nice. Um, you know I say kind of a young fledgling athlete to. To know that you're being recognized for the for the work that you're kind of putting in every day, um, you know. So it's you know it's it's a community that's still um, you know still now, you know, 15 years after after you know my Olympic games, that will you know still ask me to come back and still you know wants to recognize the performances that I that I have had you know, 15 to 20 years ago. So it's um, just really really positive supportive community um, especially for for minor athletics you know you're a coach now at your old alma mater u michigan uh, a school with a history of excellence in track and cross country talk to me about returning and uh, taking over as coach at a university like that yeah it's been uh, it's been an interesting uh, six or seven months now um, you know at the, at the time um you know, I was looking for some coaching positions last uh, last summer. Um, you know, for a couple of for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, I was ready to to transition um, and um, and do some different things with my life. And um, and coaching is always a, a passion that I have had and was able to kind of follow at a more in a volunteer capacity at a couple of other institutions. And so when this job came open. Um, I kind of went. I went after a pretty hard call. Then a, a bunch of resources that I that I knew, um, you know, and was was fortunate enough that uh, you know I was I was uh, offered the position and accepted last fall, and it's um, it's been pretty amazing. I mean, uh, I was lucky that I stepped into a pretty um, a very quality group of, of athletes um, that were willing to buy into a new system, um, and. Um, and have really kind of taken to what what I'm trying to to preach in in training and racing and and um, and just kind of every day you know how you prepare for the next workout the next day in class um, so it's been it's been a lot of fun it's been it's it's, it's definitely a lot different than than being on the athletic side of things but um, you know I've enjoyed myself it's um, you know it's definitely uh, it's a lot of long days it's a lot a lot of days on the road it's a lot of recruiting and um and that's a big thing in in ncaa um in ncaa track and field is you could be you could be the greatest coach in the world and uh you know if you don't surround yourself with with great athletes um then you know performances usually don't come so you spend a lot of time trying to evaluate high school talent and figure out you know which which guys are the ones that are going to develop and which ones are going to be the ones that stagnate and uh and always kind of looking for that diamond in the rough. So it's, uh, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. You know, on that topic, when it comes to looking for the optimal student athlete, outside of the obvious, uh, good running ability and being able to keep up in class, what qualities are you looking for? 
Yeah, I mean, and those are those are two of the biggest things. But you know, times typically don't lie too much, so you know, we definitely look at what guys are, you know, how they're currently competing uh, in their high school careers. Um, you know, we are a, a very an, an extremely rigorous academic institution, so we, you know, we look for great students as well, and we really have to have a a great combination of the two um, because it is getting more and more competitive on the academic side of things at the university. Um, especially in terms of just trying to get athletes admitted, um, but really, you know, you look for you, you look for some of the intangibles. I mean, you maybe if you don't have a you don't have an athlete with the fastest times, but they're you know you see a, a competitive fight and, and desire a, 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 an athlete that is maybe from smaller schools that doesn't get opportunities to race against top quality competition, but is consistently winning. Uh, it's cons- is, isn't afraid to be aggressive. So you look for you look for things like that. You look for um, you know you look for a, a type A type mentality when you're talking to athletes. Uh, you know you want to make sure that they are competitive and driven and have goals um, and are not going to be passive aggressive and, and and just kind of waiting for somebody else to always tell them how to how they should do things or how they should react or what they should do. You you know you want guys that are willing to one, observe and learn and be able to make decisions on their own. So, you know, we're looking at a lot of different things when we're looking at athletes beyond just the, you know, just beyond just the, you know, you've run this fast for, you know, this race. You know, what what has been the most uh, rewarding part of coaching for you so far? Well, I mean, I think, you know, even in the, with the athletes that I worked with before, I mean, you know, just seeing improvement, um, seeing success in, you know, it doesn't have to be in, in athletes winning races. I mean, that's great when I have an athlete that, that wins. You know, I have I have a great athlete in Mason Furlick, who is a Big Ten champion and, you know, is ranked number four in NCAA in the, in the, in the 3,000 meter steeplechase right now. But I also have athletes where, you know, I have an athlete that, that drops five, six, seven seconds in a, in a 3K steeple or knocks 10 seconds off a 5K TV. I mean, you can get as much satisfaction out of seeing that improvement as you can out of the, the athlete that is going to be challenging for a win. So, you know, it's about, you know, sitting down with each athlete and, and really seeing, you know, where they're at, looking at what their goals are, trying to plan to improve upon those goals, and then hopefully seeing those goals come to fruition. When uh, I was doing a little bit of research for this interview, I came across Capital City Runners, and the idea really, uh, you know, it really intrigued me. Uh, perhaps could you explain what it is, and do you have any f- future ex- plans for expansion for it? Well, Capital City Runners is actually a, uh, a retail store that myself and Nate Brandon started um, down in Tallahassee, Florida, when we were both living down there. And it's kind of your, you know, it's your locally owned um you know, traditional type run specialty store, um, you know, basically, you know, the, the local version of, uh, of a running room type, type store. So, you know, what I think you find is a little bit more, you know, hands-on, a little bit more invested in the, the overall, um, you know, the local community, um, and maybe some of the, some of the more corporate type, uh, run specialty stores. But, um, yeah, it was something Nate and I were both kind of, I was transitioning out of my athletic career and Nate was looking for something to kind of, um, uh, kind of to have as, as, a as a fallback point for when his career was done. And so we, 
you know, we took the initiative and started the store. We've been uh, open almost five years now, and uh, you know, Nate eventually moved away and sold and sold his share of the store. You know, I still own mine, and um, you know, I don't do much on the operation end of things. But um, but yeah, we um, took the thing from the ground up and um, have been seeing some seeing a lot of success uh, seeing a lot of success on the retail side of things. Uh, speaking of Nate, uh, he's someone that you have worked with in the past, uh, as you just mentioned, uh, but he's also a guy who has mentioned you as being someone that he draws a lot of influence from. With Rio on the horizon for him and possibly his last Olympics, have you been you know, offering any advice and do you guys keep in contact? Um, we see each other once in a while. It's, uh, we, we don't, obviously, with him living in Ohio now, we don't see each other as much um, as only you know, when we lived a couple miles away. Um, you know, and, and the thing is, you know, Nate's got... Nate's got as much experience now as, as I had when I ended my career. So, you know, I'm not one that would, would typically just go out and offer advice. I mean, I think if, um, you know, if he were to approach me about, you know, you know, with any type of advice or and that goes for kind of any, any um, athlete, especially Canadian athlete in, in his situation, um, you know, I'm more than willing to, to offer whatever, whatever I have and, and you know, Hopefully, it, hopefully it's helpful. But Nate is uh, Nate's lucky in that he's he's surrounded himself with. Um, he's got a great coach. He's got a lot of great advisors around him, and um, and he's very well taken care of. And you know, he's proved that by you know by winning medals at Commonwealth and and uh, and making finals at, at World Championships. Um, you know, those are things that uh, those, those can take you a long way. Those experiences, and um, you know, I think the big thing for Nate is if he. If he manages to, if he stays healthy over the next year and a half, um, then uh, then I think he's, he'll have a great shot to, to perform well in Rio. You know, I see last year that you competed in the Honolulu Marathon. Uh, how does it compare to the shorter track stuff? And do you think that you've gotten <laughs> the marathon bug or, or no, not yet? No, I, I, I don't have the marathon bug. I, I did it um, somewhat on a whim. Um, you know, I, I was out there, uh, you know, as a, as a guest of the marathon and, and kind of decided at the last minute to, to run, um, to, to run the whole marathon. I had planned on running part of it with uh, a couple other guys as, as part of the long run and just decided to keep going. So it was, um, it was, it was de- definitely interesting. You know, I, I definitely didn't, I didn't run hard enough to, to really put myself in a, in a lot of distress. Um, you know, but it was the farthest I've ever run in at one time. So I, I certainly, um, I didn't feel great coming out of it, but I knew it could have felt a lot worse had I had I really pressed. So um, that, you know, for all intents and purposes, is my one and only only marathon. I don't really have any desire to do another one, to be honest. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Terminal Mile. Thanks to every single person who has taken the time to be on the show, maybe helped out with the show, or even listened. 2015 was a blast. Let's hope that 2016 is even better. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can find us on Twitter at The Terminal Mile. You can stream us via tracky.ca, Stitcher, iTunes, and tune in. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Terminal Mile, a Tracky Radio production.